class. And many middle and lower class men are good people. They're good people. They're trying to do the right thing. And to be told to shut up, sit down, you've had it so easy for so long, you're just reactionary and racist. Just, you know, shut up and we're going to take what we want. It, for one thing, it makes men angry, but it also just, I think, really disappoints and hurts them at a mm -hmm. deep, at a deep level. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone. Sometimes I'm dining with friends. And sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Jack Kammer, MSW, received his master's in social work in 2008. He did a year as a correctional officer, aka jail guard, in the infamous Baltimore City Detention Center. Following that, with a year as a probation and parole officer agent in central Baltimore. Then he went on to work for National Fatherhood Initiative as a trainer for various state correction systems to teach prison staff how to run NFI's Inside Out Dad program for incarcerated fathers. He started a social work consultancy called Working Well with Men, whose mission was to provide tools and training for the social work profession to help men give and get all the love they can. He produced and hosted a radio show called In a Man's Shoes on a public station near Baltimore from 1983 to 1989. He was executive director of the National Congress for Men, whose motto was preserving the promise of fatherhood. In 1985 and 1986, he worked with the late former 7th District Congressman and Black Caucus Chair Elijah Cummings when he was a Maryland State Delegate in the effort he sponsored to have Maryland establish a task force for our men to study the connection between male social issues and problems of crime, violence, educational underachievement, unpaid child support, and others. In 1994, St. Martin's Press published his book, God Will Toward Men, Women Talk Candidly About the Balance of Power Between the Sexes, a collection of interviews he con conducted with 22 women, most of whom identified as feminists, all of whom were ready, willing, and able, and even eager to talk not just about women's disadvantages as women, but also their advantages, and not just about men's advantages as men, but also their disadvantages. He was named Outstanding Recent Graduate of the University of Maryland School of Social Work in 2012, and he gave a pre presentations on social work professions, gender bias, 
at the National Association of Social Workers State Conference in New Mexico, 2010, North Carolina, 2011, and Maryland in 2015. An emblematic piece of feedback came from New Mexico. The presentation and the presenter pissed me off, but it all made me think really hard and made me realize that I need to keep these kinds of ideas in mind. He also presented at the first and second National Conferences on Social Work with and for men in 2008 and 2009. Well, thank you so much for coming back to Diversity Dish. It is so great to have you back. Today, my guest is Jack Kammer, and he is a counter-feminist social worker. We're going to figure out exactly what that means. Here's Jack. Hi, Jack. How are you? Hi, Sadie. Do you say Sadie or Sadie? Sadie. Sadie. Okay. Hi. Hi. Very nice to meet you. you. Good to meet you, too. I, I am I am good. I am I am hopeful about our show and I'm also a little apprehensive about how it will go because I think we're coming at the same issue from different places. But boy, would that be a great opportunity if we can meet in the middle. That's exactly why Diversity Dish is here, and I would love for it to be that way. Thank you for being here. I'm really excited to have you here. And before we get into the meat and potatoes, as I like to say, I would love for you to tell us, what is it that you are most passionate about right now? I am most passionate right now about the same thing I've been most passionate about since I think about 1983, and that is helping to articulate and helping people to understand the real lives of men and boys and to overcome the stereotypes that apply to some men, but not to all. I don't even think to most. And in fact, I think they are wrong about most. And in the context of our show, what I am most passionate about is the possibility that we might be able to do our little part. Maybe it won't be so little, I don't know, to do our part in helping to understand why so many men, including men of color, surprising, a surprising number of men of color voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> and, if, and if we can understand why so many men voted for Donald Trump, and help to understand that they weren't really voting for Trump as much as they were voting for, I don't know, some empathy, which he, in I think a very phony way projected, but made that empathy real. It would be healthy for our public discourse, our public policy, and to give men a chance to vote for somebody that they'd really like rather than Donald Trump and still feel like they were being heard. Right. I think that is so interesting that you said that because we often ignore the male vote, don't we? We take into consideration the female vote because of course, always, oh, you know, 50 
52% or 57% of, of white women voted for Donald Trump. Of course, there was a percentage of black women or other, you know, uh, marginalized people that voted for Donald Trump. But no one ever talks about how many men voted for Donald Trump. And I think what happens is that we simply chalk it up to the fact that those men were like him or thought like him. And so they decided that he was the right man for them. And I think that might be not just a misconception, but I think it's, I think it might be hard for men to, to, to be put into that bucket. So how do we, what is the conversation? What are we supposed, we need to have a conversation. Well, to, to, at, at the risk of conflating presidents, <laughs> I want to uh, quote the famous line from uh, Bill Clinton. I feel your pain. <laughs> now, and I think Clinton, being a, a very different person from Donald Trump, really did feel people's pain. He was a much more empathic person than Trump. But Trump pretended to feel people's pain. Right. He looked around and saw that there were some people who were not happy with the way things were going in their lives. And he decided, yep, that's an, that's a political opportunity for me. I'm going right. to tap into that and tell those people what they want to hear. Right. Even though I don't really believe it. Right. And what I hope we can do is to talk about the pain that a lot of men really do feel and to make it possible for progressive people and social justice warriors even to take those feelings into account in an empathic way and not to dismiss them immediately as the reactionary Neanderthalish, uh, racist, hateful attitudes of a bunch of white men, ignoring the fact that a lot of black men voted for, for, for Trump too. That's what that's what I hope. And, and that's and that is that's the that's the core of my passion is to help men be better understood, because yeah. I think if we help under, if we understand men better, we'll treat men better. It was um, Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. Yeah. Who, according to his archivist, I, I checked with her to see if she thought this was true. I heard that he carried in his wallet and she said it's very possible because he did carry things in his wallet. And it sounds like the kind of thing. Mr. Rogers would have said, he said, there is nobody you couldn't learn to love once you know their story. True. And men's story is not really very well understood. Yeah. You know, we talk and understand and look and I don't know, scrutinize a lot the, the lives of men at the top. But, you know, I, I like to say um, name one of the 22 men who died building the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm. And, and, and even worse than not being able to name any of them is that 22 is just the estimate. Right. <laughs> you're, not even really, you're not even really sure how many men died building the Brooklyn Bridge. Right. And you know those forgotten people are the people that I think need and deserve some attention and some empathy. And if, if we can figure out a way to provide that at the same time, we are working on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm -hmm. and not exclude men from mm -hmm. those ideas of diversity, equity, and inclusion, we'll be way ahead of the game. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, we won't exactly all be sitting around singing Kumbaya, but, you know, we no. might be singing, we might be singing, I don't know, the Star Spangled Banner in a whole different way, or, or maybe even lift up every voice and sing in a That's whole right. different way. Right, right. Well, I find it really interesting because yeah, I have a son. <laughs> I'm happen to be married to a man, <laughs> a white man at that. I have brothers and cousins and all these men around me who do not fit the stereotype, if you will, of what men are expected to be. And I think that that's what happens is that there's a certain expectation that's put on men. And then therefore they feel like they have to live up to this expectation and pushing themselves down. It can't be that women or I have that and it's seen and they have that in it and it's not seen and it's okay that it's not seen. I do think that that is, that is a very deep truth that we don't spend enough time talking about. We, yeah. we've spent a lot of time vilifying and I think that that's probably not the way that we want to go into it. Please go ahead. Well, I just, I just want to, I just want to keep this close to what I'm hoping we, we can do. If you're vilifying people, you're not really doing a good job of getting them to vote for you. <laughs> you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, when we talk about, if we're talking about, you know, political candidates, when we talk about political candidates, we have to talk about, Gert, they have to cover so many different things. But one of those things also does need to be the needs of their male constituents. And oftentimes we think that men have the power. So we don't need to talk about them because they already have the power. We need to talk about those who uh, seem more powerless. And one thing that I like to uh, bring forth is that none of us is powerless. It just depends on how we decide to, to use that power. We look at government institutions, we look at corporations, we look at small businesses, we look at all sorts of things. And we think that they're so big and they are doing this and they're doing that. And if we really come down to it, it's individual people who are doing. Well, here's, here's what I would like to say about the idea of men in power. The, the male power structure is very hierarchical and we tend our eyes as we stand at the base of this huge vertical power structure, our eyes tend to be drawn to the top. Wow. <laughs> Look at that. And who's up there? It's a lot of men. We aren't so interested in looking down at street level and then maybe even to the basement, mm -hmm. to the fellows who are shoveling the coal to keep the place warm. And there are a lot more men at the bottom mm -hmm. than at the top. And another thing that we need to keep in mind is that, yes, there is such a thing as patriarchy. However, the primary function of patriarchy, even though it required men to be patronizing mm -hmm. toward women and children in some ways, in mm -hmm. many ways, the primary function of patriarchy was not to take care of men. The primary function of patriarchy was to 
constructive a society that was good for men, but also was protective of women and children and deciding that we were, as men, were the ones to know what was good for women and children, you know, that was patronizing in some ways. But the patriarchy is not looking to take care of men. It is not primarily focused on what's good for men. The, the men at the top are perfectly happy with their situation. They're the quote unquote winners in the game that men are all supposed to be playing. And the men at the bottom, well, they're a bunch of losers. I, I don't want to, I don't care about them. It's their fault. You know, I was, I was great. I climbed to the top. They're a bunch right. of losers. Right. Men do not vote uh, as a block. Right. Because there is a lot of stratification in the amounts of power between men at the top and men at the bottom. And we know that income inequality is not good for the cohesiveness of a community. Mm -hmm. And what I'm talking about in terms of power isn't income inequality, but power inequality. The men at the bottom don't really feel a lot of kinship with the men at the top. And so we don't vote as a block. Women, however, don't live and operate exclusively in a huge vertical power structure. Women don't operate in a skyscraper, an office building. Women's power structure is much more like a convention or conference center. <laughs> it might only be two stories or three stories high, but it covers 18 acres. And the people in there are very much equals. I mean, that's why they come together to, to sort of talk about other people who are like them and who have similar interests. And once those similar interests are understood, there is a reason for women to vote together, to vote as a block. And it's not happening for men. Interesting. I can see, I can see what you're talking about because when I, if we just think about the Black Panther movement. The Black Panther movement incorporated all people, all people that were at the lower classes that were being affected by the things that were happening up at the top. And that was a vision that they had to help lower the people at the lower classes, the people who were not being thought of pool their power and therefore begin to think and vote in in a way that would be helpful to the the collective so i can totally see what you're saying and what a great loss that was that that was a movement that was nipped so early in its birth yeah i i i see that i see that so what is it that you think that men want what is it that you know, you say that, that they're not a, a collective, they're not gonna, you know, they're not, they don't vote as a block, but what is it that would speak to more of them? The concept of procedural justice is really important here. And the concept of procedural justice is that as long as people feel like they were being heard and they had a chance to make their case 
And as long as, you know, if you want to think about procedural justice in the, in the context of a courtroom, as long as they got a chance to make their case to the jury mm-hmm. and the proceedings were fair and people weren't biased against them, but that they got a chance to really make their best argument, that went a long way towards making them accept the verdict or the judgment, whether it went in their favor or not. Mm -hmm. And right now, I think that a lot of men and and also a lot of women, uh, a lot of white women at the lower classes feel that they're not being heard. They're not being understood. There is no procedural justice for them because the system has been hijacked by a very absolutist way of thinking. If you don't agree with me, then you are such and such. You know, it starts Mm -hmm. with, if you don't agree with me, you are hostile to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you're off to the races. (laughs) Then then you're my enemy. Mm -hmm. And then what do we do with our enemies? We demonize them. Right. Why do we demonize them? So that we don't have to feel bad about treating them horribly. Mm -hmm. Which is what humans have to do in order to treat other humans badly. We have to demonize each other and we have to other each other in order to say it doesn't matter what happens to them because they're not, they're terrible anyway. Yes. And many middle and lower class men are good people. They're good people. They're trying to do the right thing. And to be told to shut up, sit down, you've had it so easy for so long. You're just reactionary and racist. Just, you know, shut up and we're going to take what we want. For one thing, it makes men angry, but it also just, I think, really disappoints and hurts them at a Mm -hmm. deep, at a deep level that this isn't what life in America was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. supposed to be about fairness and democracy and, and respect for each other. And, and, you know, this is not what a community is supposed to be. Right. And Donald Trump tapped into that. Yes. That vein of discord. resentment, just resentment. Resentment yes, is, is, a good word. is, and, and it didn't yeah. start out as resentment. It right. started out as hurt and disappointment. Right. But, you know, after you try a little bit, I mean, you're not really invited to try, but after you, you know, try a little bit to say, hey, come on, this isn't fair. And you get batted down as a racist and a, and a troglodyte and a reactionary and a hateful person, then it becomes resentment. Wait a second. I'm not a reason. And you're not so perfect because, you know, look at, at, look at the, the, the power plays you're making, you're taking that you're, you're deploying. It's, it's, it's not healthy. So procedural justice. People think, feel like they've been heard is key. Yes. And I think a lot of what you're saying is a lot of what I say a lot of the time in that when we look at society today, we're looking at it as if it is something that was just dropped in and that just happened just like this, where, you know, this is how things are because, you know, it just came this way. Failing to realize that 
looking back historically is so important to understanding how things work and what's going on today. And so I say, I fully agree with you that we need to have these conversations. I think that there's a breakdown happens because sometimes we don't realize that the same generational traumas that uh, marginalized people are, are going through and dealing with and probably unpacking and going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, correlate to the same generational traumas that white people have, and but that they don't confront or that they don't look at or they don't think about as being generational traumas. But I also think that we as marginalized people look at that and go, well, all you're doing is living in this space without looking at what's happened to create what's going on. And then we don't have the tools to actually come together and talk about it because we've been segregated. We've been pushed apart. We've been indoctrinated in different ways in different places. And so we do need to have those conversations. We do need to bring it to the fore. I agree with you in that we need to bring it to the fore and realize why these some of these thoughts are, are being had. And then, like you said at the beginning, I hope that we can find a place where we can understand each other and actually do something about what's going on. Hey, thanks for listening. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and I help entrepreneurs and small businesses go from mediocre to magnificent by transforming their cultures to be more equitable and inclusive. To find out how we can work together, go to diversitydish.com, where you'll find my consulting, coaching, and speaker information. Diversitydish.com. I look forward to working with you. Yes. And I would like to make a point that I, excuse me, that I think is valid, that it's, it's very good and magnanimous of you to acknowledge that white people too have histories of difficulty. However, I think that a lot of white people would be very able and willing and are very able and willing to acknowledge that the, the historical traumas of blacks in America are probably on the whole, a whole lot worse. And no doubt. (laughs) Yeah. And, and if given a chance to have it recognized what you recognized that, yeah, a a lot of white folks came over to the, to the United States, you know, because of the Irish potato famine or because Uh, The coal mines in Scotland or wherever, you know, ran out and they saw a better opportunity to come and work in the coal mines in in America. You know, not exactly live in large. They all didn't come over on the Mayflower. Right. No. Right. And you're you're absolutely right. Yeah. So so to have it recognized that, you know, white people, you know, are struggling too, makes it easier for white people to be able to say thank you for acknowledging that. And man, it must really be hard trying to overcome the legacy of slavery. Right. You know? Reaching yes. out and and not saying yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, but yes, yes and. and. Yes, and. Absolutely. Yes, and. 
I think even through through slavery, I would never discount what happened in this country to enslaved people. It is it was an atrocity of magnanimous proportions to the extent that we even have a very, very difficult time when we begin, I'll speak for myself, when I begin to read accounts of things that happened to enslaved people in this country, it makes me ill. It is atrocious, right? It is atrocious. At the same time, when we think about the people who were inflicting that atrocity, what that did to their psyche and what that also comes down, it's those who, who were enslaved had it much, much worse. And we are unpacking that and we've been unpacking that for years, right? And, but, we've, but we need for the other portion of that atrocity to acknowledge and unpack as well, because until that happens, we're yelling into a void because that portion of the population that is not confronting that, that is saying, I didn't do it. Why do I have to pay for it? But yet I am benefiting from everything that was put into place because of this system. If they're not confronting, if they're not speaking up about it, if they're not unpacking themselves there there's this chasm that is that is created right there's this place where you know you're looking over and you're going ah, ah, we can't cross that it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and we can't and we can't cross it i think that there are many people who are working to build bridges across that chasm who are working to go like you said yes and yes you have to be able to acknowledge yes and it can't be but because then that is only trying to my understanding is that's only trying to be right and that's only feeding the ego of needing to be right versus the need to build or to understand to be understood and that sort of thing so when we talk about men it is kind of the same thing. I have a 15-year-old son whom I love, whom I can kiss whenever I want to, who gives me hugs whenever he wants to, who hugs his dad, who hugs his, my uncle, his uncles, and who is who he is. And we make it okay. And we have to make it okay for boys and men to be able to be that expressive, as expressive as he is, without going, oh, uh, why are you doing that? That's not like a guy <laughs> or whatever people say. <laughs> I don't know. Well, what they what they often say is, <laughs> even when a boy accidentally touches another boy, no homo, no homo. Right. That's <clears throat> that's that's uh, that's not good. That's not good. Well, you're you're. Touching on gender issues there, I don't know if you want to uh, jump into that. Um, <laughs> do, do, you, do you want to? Or, or we can go we... wherever we want. Well, when I was thinking about what I would like to say in this podcast, I was thinking of talking about some experiences I have had with 
the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, under the supposition that my experiences are not completely unlike other people's, they might be instructive to talk about. And I suppose also what I would like to do is to talk about ways in which the, the DEI community mm-hmm. can sort of think about its about product improvement. Mm-hmm. Product improvement as a way to increase its market share, <laughs> to get more people to buy it. I think because you have right to now, expand uh-huh. on that a little bit. Well, it's it's uh, the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion is it's a it's a it's a package of thoughts and ideas that suggest that if we adopt this package of ideas, the world will be better. The United States will be better. It's really what we need. And there are some people who have had experiences with that product, that package of ideas who are like, I don't think so. That's not my experience of it. So I have some examples of Mm -hmm. my experience with diversity, equity, and inclusion that I would like to suggest we could talk about as a ways of improving the, improving the product and making it more marketable and mm-hmm. acceptable to the people who are currently like, no way. Here, here's an example. I worked for 10 years for a large nonprofit organization in Washington, DC. This organization took very good care of its employees. And one of the perks was a nice gym in the basement. And I would go there. I don't know. I would like to think I went there every day. Probably didn't. Went there, <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe three times a week. But it was very much a part of my routine. And it was very good for my mental health, you know, along with my physical health. But mainly, it was good for my mental health. And the routine in the gym, in the basement of this building, was that it was quiet, And if you wanted to listen to music, you know, you could bring your little portable radio and your earbuds. If you wanted to, you know, listen to an audible book, you could do that. Your preferences did not adversely impact my preferences. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing this for years. One day I went into the gym and there was a TV playing with a sound up the Jerry Springer show. Oh boy. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, what are they doing here? Why, what? And, I, and, and also in the gym at the time was a, a black woman with whom I had worked a lot in the course of my duties at this organization. And I expressed to her my, I guess without thinking about it, I was thinking about procedural justice. What, did anybody ever ask me? Did anybody right. ever give anybody a chance to say whether this would be a good idea or not? So I was expressing my unhappiness at this, this uh, new situation. And this woman said to me, oh, Jack, you need to be more diverse. Yes. Yes. That's what she said. I need to be more diverse. How that... How, how the idea of diversity. I don't, I don't, I don't even understand how it even fits into this 
scenario. <laughs> yeah, well, it would be good to ask her and to trace it to trace it in her brain. Right. As as to how this is a matter of diversity. Right. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. You know, could it be that the Jerry Springer show is is very popular with black women? I don't know. Maybe. Um, but, you know, is that really diversity or is that just my choice and you better damn well accept it? Right. And that's that's not healthy. Here's here's another example. Um, there is a lot of effort underway right now to encourage women to apply and the schools to accept applications for women to get into STEM disciplines, STEM programs, science, technology, engineering, and math. Mm -hmm. Great. That's fine. We need more women in science, technology, engineering, and math. That's great. That, that's all considered part of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have a degree in social work. And I am wondering why diversity, equity, and inclusion seems to be so non-diversely applied to situations in which men are the minority community. Now, if, if there is benefit to the country to having women running the calculations that are necessary to decide how to build a bridge, mm -hmm. that's fine. I, I don't know that a woman's calculations on how to build a bridge are going to be very much different from a man's, but you know, if there's benefit to having women in STEM programs, that's fine with me. But if there is benefit to having women deciding how to build a bridge, there is at least as much benefit for there to be men in social work helping to decide how to build families. Mm -hmm. Not happening. It's not happening. Right. And I believe that the reason that's not happening is because families are a female domain. Mm -hmm. I'm the mother and women in social work imbued with this idea of sisterhood are looking to take care of other women and other mothers. Mm -hmm. And they are not interested in changing the status quo any more than the most racist man you can think of is interested in having blacks uh, be employed by their, their union or in their company. So, you know, there is, a, there is an, that's an entryway into trying to think about how, di how diverse is diversity really? Mm -hmm. And do men have any areas in their lives where they would like to be treated differently, where they would like to be treated as a minority, where they would like to be treated as the relatively disempowered or second-class citizens? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer is manifestly yes. Now, mm -hmm. do men talk about this? No, no, we don't. Why right. don't we talk about it? Well, for lots of good reasons. One of which is, oh, poor baby. Right. Oh, poor right. baby. You men have all the power. Take a look at all the presidents. Take a look at all the, the people in Congress. Right. Well, okay. They're way up there on the 80th floor. And I'm down <laughs> here in the basement shoveling coal. 
Right. Okay. Right. So, yeah. you know, that, 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 oh, poor baby is the opposite of empathy. Right. It's the opposite of empathy. It's the opposite of openness. It's the opposite of procedural justice. Mm -hmm. Rather than saying, oh, really, you know, I never thought about that. Let's talk about that. Is there a way that we can achieve a wider range of social justice? Yes. Is, is there a, a group of people who we don't even think of as being in need of some social justice changes? And I think the answer is, although, you know, men aren't ready to talk about it because they've been so focused socialized. on other things. And yeah. And, and yeah, socialized to think about other things and, and been so um, thoroughly uh, trained not to go there. Right. Uh, that, you know, we're not, we're not talking about that, but deep in their hearts, they know it. They're probably not even talking about it with their best buddies because, you know, when buddies get together, how's it going, Joe? Oh, fantastic. But it'll get better. You know, all of that stuff. It's, right. Yeah. It's, it's not healthy, but you know, you get, you get, uh, you get a chance to go into a private ballot booth. You know? And then you yeah. decide. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's yeah, right. I think, <laughs> yeah yeah yes yeah 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 i think i i i think that what you're talking about is something that i've concluded on on different occasions and that is that it's more about the equity and the inclusion that attracts the diversity than it is about putting the diversity first uh, I believe that when we are equitable in creating uh, cultures that are equitable. So when you said, did anybody ask me about, you know, turning this TV on or putting this TV on? It's about having companies talk to their people and say, this is what we're thinking about. What are your ideas? What are your thoughts? Which, is, which comes back to your uh, the, the, the justice part of it, the, the, do you think that you've been heard, right? If you're asking and it comes down on the side of, well, most people wanted to have the TV there and you heard about it, then you would feel like, oh, well, okay. A lot of people wanted this here. I'm going to work around it rather than have it just show up and you go, who, who decided this and why did they decide this and when did they decided decide this right those so those questions you just posed who decided this how did this happen what was the process for making this decision when you don't have information yeah conspiracy theories jump in yep <laughs> and so what occurred to me was oh my god Probably somebody who likes Jerry Springer went to her BFF in the facilities department and said, hey, you know what would be great? Put in a television in the gym. Right. right. You know, that's, the, that's the thinking. Is that what happened? Could that have been what happened? And, and that's, you know, that's a microcosm of how people feel about the whole realm oh. of social justice issues yes why nobody 
talk to me. Nobody asked me. Just those people up there in control and power are yes. making decisions for their benefit and for their self-interest. And they are not paying any attention. They're not even asking me what I want. Right. What I and want, I think, what I need, how, how I think is going to affect me. Absolutely. You're absolutely yes. right about that. And I, and, I, and that's why I don't, when I, you know, that, and that's why I always emphasize, it's not about putting things out. It's about bringing information in and then processing that. And then saying, this looks like what most people are feeling. How do we, how do we work with that? This looks like what most people are thinking. Yes. And, and there's a, there's an additional benefit to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's not just, you know, we count noses and the majority wins. It's when you're making a decision and you bring diverse viewpoints together, you're much more likely to come up with, with a, a more nuanced, elegant, sophisticated solution that really touches as many buttons as possible. You know, which is why I think we so much need men in social work. We need to encourage men in, into social work because, you know, what can be more complicated than human relationships? Mm-hmm. And when they're being judged and, and we devise programs and treatments and therapies and interventions for families in trouble, and we only focus understand the female point of view, mm-hmm. it ain't working. Mm-hmm. It ain't working. Mm-hmm. And I think we can look around at some of our most distressed communities and see the fallout yeah. of that. I'm not saying that's the entire cause of the distress in our most distressed communities, but I think it's a very big part of it. Yes. And in a lot of social, you know, social services don't include men. As a matter of fact, they take the, the man out of the situation. So the man has to out himself from the situation in order for the mother and the children to benefit. And I yes. think that that is horrible. I think that yes. that is, that is, that is horribly, you know, degrading. And, and counterproductive. Very. Now that's, that's, that situation is, is getting best, better. It, it, it is not quite as blatant as you know, the social workers walking into the apartment and looking under the bed to see if there's no shoes <laughs> there. You know, it's not, it's not quite that bad. And, and we are getting a little smarter about recognizing that, no, we don't really want to kick men out of the house. But back in the day, you know, in the 60s and 70s, the war on poverty, I think, was largely a war on fathers. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't a war on fathers, fathers were certainly collateral damage mm-hmm. in the war on poverty. Mm-hmm. Now, how did we get these um, these policies that so terribly decimated fatherhood? Well, there was a lot of men at the top. <laughs> there was a lot of men at the top right. who did not think very well of the men at the bottom. And we have to take care of the women and the children. Right. And those bums, those bums are getting all these women pregnant as if, you know, she was in Texas at the time. And so, you know, it's their fault. We got to come down hard on these guys. Right. Which was stupid and has been proven stupid. 
the whole child support thing was completely devoid of rea the reality of men's lives. It's been, it took 20 years, 30 years for us to realize that the reason these guys aren't paying their child support is because they don't have any money. Mm -hmm. And you keep beating on them. It's sort of like uh, that old saying, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Right. And isn't that just how we work in, in a lot of microcosms? Isn't that just how it works? Right. Yeah. If you have, let's say you have a credit card and you can't pay the minimum. Now they charge you an extra amount of money and they make it go higher. And you can't pay that either because you couldn't pay the first part, right? But then they charge you, they keep charging you. And then they, you know, send you to collections to pay all these fees because you couldn't pay the first amount, right? And yeah. it, it works that way for so many things. And I think that it is meant or, it, it, or the effect is that it keeps the down down. And I'm, I'm go ahead. And, 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 and it, you know, so the rich get richer, basically. So they they push, they push up, but you know what has to happen is that they have to push up, push down on enough necks. Because when you're holding someone down, you can't rise that high, right? Because you've got to make sure that you're keeping them down. So what do you do then? You get someone else to do the job for you who doesn't understand quite why it is this way, but who knows that their job is to keep you down, right? Well, the repo, so they get the a, repo man ain't making a whole lot of money. Exactly. And he's not making a lot of money either, right? So he's yeah. being kept down by the next person, yeah. right? And right. the next person right. who's making maybe just a little bit more than that other person is yeah. keeping that other person down. And it becomes, like you said, this pyramid, <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a, I'm reading a book right now called why nations fail. And the pri I'm, I'm about halfway through and mm -hmm. the primary concept of it so far. And I think it's going to carry through to the end of the book is that the healthiest nations are the nations whose economic system is inclusive rather than extractive. So this thing yes. you were talking about with the, the credit cards, that's extractive. We don't care about these people. We really don't care about whether they're going to be long-term credit card holders. We don't care if we force them into bankruptcy. We don't force them. We don't care if we force them into, into despair and suicide. We don't care. We're going to get as much money out of them as we can for as long as we can on the short-term basis. We're just going to extract from them as much as we can. Right. Patients that are built on extractive institutions fail. What you want is inclusive right. economic institutions, and not just economic institutions, all institutions. You want to make people feel included and excited about their potential. And yeah. that's, and, and so how much better would it be if the credit card company would have to spend some money uh, on a, on a, customer service unit that was willing to call somebody up and say, Hey, um, can we work out a deal here? We understand your own hard times. We'd like to keep you as a customer because we know when you get back on your feet, you're going to be a customer of ours for 30 years. Right. What can we do to help you rather right. than squash you? Yeah. So yes, we right. need, we need the idea of inclusion, diversity, equity, and inclusion 
that part of inclusion is so key to making people feel like they are part of the game. They are right. part of the team. They are recognized and valued and they have an opportunity to develop their potential and to be as good as they can be. Right. It's a positive, it's a positive way of looking at people rather than a negative way. Right. Right. Or so a magnanimous way of looking at people rather than a selfish way. Rather than a selfish way. Right. So if we take, if we think about it and we take that credit card company and we consider that the credit card company is made up of people, the people make up this credit card company. And if more of those people, even those people who are, who own, you know, greater shares of this company, if we take those people and those individual people were empowered from the top down, from the bottom up, right? Not from the top down, the bottom up to say, you know what, what is happening here is not helpful. How can we make it better? And the information could go to the top and the top and say, you know what, you're right. Let's see what we can do. How much better you said, we're not going to sing Kumbaya. We're not going to sing Kumbaya because there are too many different personalities, too many different things going on. But we could be in the same room and be with each other without killing each other, right? <laughs> we may not be sitting together singing Kumbaya, but we could be in the same room without killing each other and things would be better. Things would and be better. We, we, and we could recognize that we have disagreements and that doesn't mean you're my enemy. And that doesn't mean you're hostile to me. What it means is maybe I need to know a little bit more about where you're coming from, and maybe you need to know a little bit more about where I'm coming from, and maybe what we both bring to the table can be the, oh, wow, we could do it this way. Exactly. In a way right. that doesn't occur from merely one point of view. Right. And that's why they say companies that get it right are the companies that are the most innovative and also the most profitable because they get to see it in a more 360 degree angle versus just the 180 that everybody's looking the same direction and we're all seeing the same thing. Right. Yeah. And so that is so important and which yes. is, you know, which is why it's so important. I think, you know, the work that you do and what you say, the way that you advocate for men is so important because you're right. There aren't enough people advocating for men, or maybe men's voices just aren't as loud as women's, or maybe a shrill, I don't know, whatever the case may be. But um, I don't think that that that, that voice is, is loud enough. I think that we make many, many assumptions about men and, and boys. I want to talk, touch a little bit on what, on something that you talk about, and that is the the anti-male sexism that exists within the, our society. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit for, yes. for us? Yes. Currently, the, the DEI community is focused primarily on, correct me if I'm wrong or, or you know, adjust me if I'm, if I'm slightly off the beam here, but it's primarily focused on economic opportunity, Mm -hmm. career opportunity, housing opportunity, and, and, and such things connected to economic status. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the world of economic opportunity, we see many hierarchies. And 
we see that women need and, and minorities need better opportunities mm-hmm. in those hierarchies, in those structures. So, you know, we're a materialist society. And mm-hmm. so all of these things that flow from economic structures are what we focus on and what we get jealous about when somebody else has, has it and I don't. And that's, that's social injustice. Get it, 100%, got it. The other power structure that I mentioned, not the skyscraper, but the convention center, is the place in which men need to achieve equality. Now, 60 years ago, how did the power structure, and you could... You could say it's the man if you want. I, you know, I won't take too much offense at that. <laughs> How did the power structure keep women and the minorities pushed down? By not really just pushed down, but out. Well, we can't have blacks in our company because, you know, name your favorite stereotype. Mm-hmm. Blacks are lazy. Blacks are stupid. Blacks, mm-hmm. you know, we don't can't have them, can't have any women either because women can't do math. They just want to file their nails and eat bonbons. They cry too much, you know, all of that stuff. All of these stereotypes about women and, and minorities were very finely tuned, women and minorities marginalized in those stru- from those structures. Well, let's look at the convention center you know, the family thing and the society thing and the relationship thing and the emotions thing and the expressiveness thing and the empathy thing and the caring thing, the human things. Let's look at all of that. Even though, you know, as men, we're not supposed to think that's really very important because I'm out here making the money. Well, (laughs) you know, deep in our hearts, I think we know that, uh, it's nice to get a Father's Day card. Mm-hmm. What are the stereotypes that operate to keep men out of the convention center? There's a bazillion of them. The primary one is men are violent. Men are sexual perverts. I can't trust a kid with, with, a, with a man. Kid will be abused. Men just want to watch sports. They just want to drink beer. They just want to have sex. They just want to chase women. They just want to, you know, name your stereotype, name your stereotype, name your stereotype. We need to get rid of those stereotypes in the same way that we have worked hard to get rid of the stereotypes that marginalized minorities and women. Got to get to work on undoing these stereotypes and confronting the people who not only believe the stereotypes, but who benefit from the stereotypes. When you think of the male power structure, you could say it's one huge power structure. It's probably a a collection. It's an assemblage of hierarchies. Mm -hmm. Every company has a hierarchy, but you know, there's a huge stratification there uh, Mm -hmm. from top to bottom, a lot of distance between the top and the bottom. But if you think about the female power structure, First of all, it's very lateral, only three stories high. 
covers 18 acres. So mm -hmm. the space is lateral. So the hierarchies aren't huge. The there's a, instead of one huge hierarchy in the female power structure, there's a million tiny hierarchies. And by that, I mean, every little family is a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And every woman who's got kids can think of herself as the queen of her little kingdom, her little queendom, her little domain and uh, have some man come along and say, hey, I'd like to uh, sit in the th throne room too. <clears throat> I'd like to be recognized as royalty too. I'd like to have some, um, some say in what goes on in our kingdom. Well, you know, a lot of women are like, no way. I'm the mother. You're, <laughs> you're just a man. What do you know about kids? <laughs> <laughs> and so it perpetuates itself in a very, very bad way. Now, I know yeah. that, that people will say, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of men who are really involved in their kids' lives. Yes. Okay. And there are a lot of babysitters who are involved in their kids' lives. But we're not talking about men being babysitters. We're talking about men being equal partners in deciding on the optimal upbringing of this child. Right. Yeah. And to exclude the male point of view. That's not inclusive, right? It's not diverse. Right. It's, it's, it's certainly not diversity to think that the mother, I know everything. Right. It's not equitable. <laughs> not equitable. It's not diverse. It's not inclusive. Right. You and know, it perpetuates itself depending on how, yes, right? Yes. Depending on, depending on what it is, is put in, it, it perpetuates itself. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Because a lot of kids are, well, there's a lot of single women who were doing a good job raising their kids, but there's a lot of single women who are not doing a good job raising their kids and who could use some help, not just help, but could use a partner, a fully yeah. trusted, equal partner who they respect and listen to and work with. Work with. And it needs to happen a lot more. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, you know, that's probably not exactly why a lot of men voted for Donald Trump, but you can apply that you can look in the, in the convention center just to see <clears throat> that there are a lot of families <clears throat> who are depending on men for their sustenance. And they, they, they put pressure on men <clears throat> to make money. Now, a lot of women make their own money, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of men who feel very unappreciated, very pressured very hard put upon to do what they're supposed to do so that they can at least visit the convention center and be part of a family, even though they are only second class citizens. <laughs> <clears throat> Recognition that, you know, I'm under a lot of pressure here to make money just so I can have an emotional life. Mm -hmm. And when you make it really difficult for me to keep my job or to get the next promotion because I'm a man, I, that's, that's not fair for me. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've worked for 30 years, pretty much making my, making myself sacrifice a lot of this good stuff that goes on in the convention center so that I can be in this pyramid making money. And I'm trying to work my way up. And then 
this diversity, equity, and inclusion program comes along, whether this is true or not, it's the perception that uh, it, it is hurtful. Mm -hmm. um, this program comes along and says um, that next promotion I thought I was going to get so that I could um, be more of a player in, in, the, um, in the convention center. Well, I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it. I worked with a bunch of men in the Social Security Administration. They formed, this was back in the 70s, early 80s, I think, who formed an organization called AMEN. I think it was Aged Men for Equality Now. And they told me about situations that were driving them crazy where one day their secretary was their secretary and the next day their secretary was their boss. Didn't go over well. No. That's, <laughs> it that's happens. When, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it does. And I think that that's part of the backwards thinking of, you know, in, within DEI as well. Right. I think that sometimes it's, it's, it's the knee jerk reaction that happens. Right. Like when we talk about microaggressions and we say, you know what, you did that the way that it impacted me and people are like, well, I didn't mean to do that. It's not what I intended, but blah, blah, blah. it's the knee jerk reaction of, well, we need to be more diverse. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to, we're going to just, we're going to shake this all up. We're not going to worry about, we're not going to worry about the culture that we've built. We're not going to worry about the culture that we've cultivated within the company. We're just going to make the numbers and the optics look right. And if we make yeah. the numbers and the optics look right, everything will be right. But what that does is that's what hurts people all the people within the organization. It's very hard to get people to buy into an idea of equity when what has been done is you've overlooked people's ideas and thoughts, right? And it goes back to what we were talking about, having those conversations. It goes, it overlooks everyone and it just says, you know what, this is what needs to happen and this is how it happens and it happens inequitably. People feel very much put out put on by these things. And so then what happens? They begin to look for other places to work or they become disgruntled employee, employees or the culture becomes incredibly toxic for anyone of any diverse background coming in because, oh, really? No, you're not taking my job. So here we're gonna, we're gonna create this culture here where you don't even wanna stay. Correct me if I'm wrong, but on the issue of the optics and trying to make things look good, right. tell, me if I'm, tell me if I'm wrong. I have heard, and I, I think I've seen examples where it, it appears to be true, where a company that wants to tout its, its optics, its statistics, sort of gets double credit for hiring a black woman because she's she checks, she checks off the racial diversity box and she checks off the gender diversity box. I have a very deep spot in my heart for black men. I was a parole and probation agent in central Baltimore for a year. And I've done some other things with, with, with very marginalized men. And I know they have a lot of heart that we are sort of wasting. Mm -hmm. um, but it, so, so, you know, if a, if a company can, check off two boxes by hiring a black woman, what's, where's that leave black man? Mm -hmm. 
not in a good space. And then when black women who have, you know, pretty good jobs with benefits at pretty reputable and stable companies start bringing in the dough, what do I need him for? How hurtful. I'll tell you how hurtful it is. I had some very tough guys, very tough men in my parole and probation, in my, in my parole and probation office, tough guys crying about how they just cannot catch a break. They're trying to do right and they cannot catch a break. Uh, how, how are they trying to look? I, I think I, I heard your sister use some, the four letter S word on, on the interview she did with you. So I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hesitate here. I'm just gonna say it Please. Um, in, in Baltimore and in other cities on the East coast. And I think I just spoke with somebody in Dallas who said it was happening there too. It is very common for black men to hear black men ain't shit. Now they're not hearing that from the Ku Klux Klan. They're not hearing it because they're white. They're hearing it because they're male. And it's very hurtful. It's very yeah, hurtful. So absolutely. if you're, and what, what does that mean? Black men ain't shit because they don't have a lot of money. Primarily there, but, there are some, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Well, I you mean, know, are, I think, you know, I think that that is a very misguided statement again, because when we fail to look at history, when we fail to look at the ways things worked, and have been brought into now, we, we, we say things like that, right? We, we, we just simply decide that that's just how it is because, because the stereotypes all converge, right? The stereotypes all converge. Oh, black people are lazy. Well, that black man is lazy. Black people are, uh, are not smart. Well, that black man's not smart. You know what I mean? All those stereotypes all converge and then you get to, well, black meaning shit. When in reality, the, when you look at the way that the systems work in order to keep black men out of work, keep black men out of what they need, keep black men out of the family sometimes even, then that's when you realize they could be doing the very best they can and they can't catch a break because there's so many things working against them. I fully agree with you on that. And I think that it is something that needs to be looked at and it is something that needs to be empathized with and it is something that needs to be, that needs to be examined and, and, and broken wide open because it doesn't make any sense <laughs> you know, for, for that to be an idea or thing because then it's simply another stereotype that's put on. Um, and that sexism comes in there for sure. And it's a huge waste of talent. It's a huge waste of talent to keep men and their experience, their ideas, their, their, their desire to nurture and love their children. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a huge waste. It's like we take this rocket fuel that we have and we dump it in the gutter and then we're surprised when it catches on fire. Right. <laughs> right. It's, like, it's just, what is expected? The, yeah. Well, I think what we need to expect 
what we need to expect, and you know, I don't know what the right verb is. Demand would be uh, an extreme version of it. Encourage, maybe, cajole, persuade, ask. You know, take take the, a, a male bricklayer mm -hmm. back in the day. Just as it was hard for him to accept, well, two things. One was that his wife was going to be making money too. <laughs> and number two, that this woman is going to be a bricklayer in my union? Mm. Wait a second. No, men are bricklayers. This is what makes me a man. Mm -hmm. just, just as it was very hard for, for men to accept all of the new ideas and teachings of the women's movement, and it wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. It was hard. A lot of men fought it and had a lot of trouble with it. It's going to be at least as difficult for a lot of women in the convention center. And I think it's probably going to be even harder because what this guy in the union was given up was, you know, kind of a little thing, you know, he had a job being a bricklayer and it wasn't really the most important thing in his life. His family was the most important thing in his life, but it's going to be even more difficult for women in the convention center because they are the Queens. They are the Queens, the soul. They are the monarch, the one ruler. And, I got to cut that in half. <laughs> I got to divvy this up 50, 50. No, 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 no. That's, it's going to be difficult. You know, no, I don't have to do that because he's a bum. He's no good. I'm the mother. I create life. Da -da 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 -da. You know, it's, it's, it's got to get done. It's got to get done. Yeah, I think it's, I think, you know, when we're talking about the convention center, I think that we have two different convention centers. I think when, because when we're talking about convention center, we're talking a lot about feminism and a, a lot about the feminist movement and that sort of thing. But I think that there are two convention centers. There are marginalized women in one convention center, and then there are white women in another convention center. Ah. And on, although that maybe some people can go back and forth or some people can actually visit the one or the other, the needs of the one are, are different than the needs of the other. And we see that when we talk about suffrage, we see that when we talk about the need for uh, black women to consider the community, the black community, or you know, the Asian community, the, all the marginalized women over here thinking about their community and white women thinking what we perceive as thinking more of wanting to be like the white man, right? It's very different conversations, very different communities. And so I thought, I think we also need to understand that there are going to be very different things that happen when men go into one convention center versus another convention center, because in one convention center, like you said, there, there are Queens, there are people who are, uh, definitely feeling that they can do it themselves. They don't need that man for sure. But I think that that is a product of having had to do it themselves for a long time and having had to rely on themselves. And there's a fear there, which brings me to, again, back to the conversations that need to be had so that people can understand where each other are coming from so that they can say, oh, okay, I understand. You're not trying to take anything from me. As a matter of fact, together we can build more and better, right? 
It's the same conversation that needs to be had when you're talking about equity and inclusion within a company. No, we're not trying to take anything from anybody. We're just trying to have a conversation so that we can all actually benefit together better and more. So I just, I, I kind of wanted to, to, to point that out because I think, you know, as I look at it, I think that there really are kind of two conventions going on and we need to, there have to be conversations, you know, to that effect as well. Yes, yes. And, and I want to I wanna add onto that idea too, um, by saying that there are two convention centers for, for men. Mm -hmm. And I want to make it very clear that I don't think that the problems of black men are just because they're men. You know, mm -hmm. I talk about sexism primarily because we don't talk or think much about sexism against right. men. I certainly don't want to suggest in any way that I deny the fact that racism also operates hugely against black men. And it's sort of a terrible right. one-two punch. You're right. no good because you're black. You're no good because you're man. And there are, there are, there are sexist stereotypes against women, but you know, for 60 years, we've been working on them. Right. And um, we, we need to get to work on the ones against men. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and essentially, I think what we're saying is that there's not, it's not that there, and there are bad apples in everything, right? There are people who actually fit stereotypes there are people who actually fit and 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 like being whatever it is that they're being we're talking about the majority of people and when we're talking about the majority of people i think it's important to remember to recognize that we recognize that we having these conversations is important in order to bring forth the ideas and the thoughts and the things that maybe someone's going to walk away and say, you know what, I never even thought about that before. Like, I never even thought about why men, you know, vote for Trump. I never even thought about uh, why a man might feel a certain way because of so much emphasis and so much focus being put in another direction and very little being put on men. So I appreciate this conversation and I definitely hope that people understand that from whence we come, right? That they understand that we're wanting to have more dialogue, not less. And it's not, like we said, it's not yes, but, but it's yes, and, right? We, and this, and these things. There's so many things, like there's so many layers in all of this that we're talking about. There's so many layers and we need to be able to take it as it comes, take each layer as it comes. Okay, this is a problem. How do we work this problem? And then there's this problem. How do we work this problem? Versus thinking there's only one problem, one solution to everything. It's absolutely untrue. Yeah, and it flies on the whole face of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, it, <laughs> you know there, there's, there's a, the solution, and then there's the improved solution, and then there's the improved, improved solution. And <laughs> <laughs> you have multiple iterations when you have a conversation, right? And when you yes. meet together and you say, how's it, how's it been going? What can we do better? Right. That's and the belief and the, and the idea that the, the diversity, that equity, inclusion, diversity is a, is a fix for everything is, is also a problem. 
because this is not a fix for everything. There are, they're always, like you said, we're not going to sing Kumbaya. There are always going to be people who are not going to be on board, who are not going to care for it and who are, are pushback, change, dismantle, whatever the case may be. So we have to understand that as well. Sometimes when I see that, you know, companies do, oh yeah, we do uh, a diversity training every year. <laughs> that's not good. That just, that's not helpful. That just, just does nothing for what you think you say you want to do, you know? So it's, it's kind of like, you need to have a much deeper conversation within your organization with yourself and bring that, what comes up as hard as it may be, whatever it comes up, comes up. Because when we start to actually embrace equity and embrace inclusion, that will include the needs of all. That will include that we need more men. It will include that we can, we, we need more neurodiverse people, that we need more racially diverse people, that we need more uh, disabled people, whatever it is, we just, but we have to make equity the, the more, the conversation versus making diversity the conversation. And that's kind of where I like to shift things because that means more, that is a more long-term sustainable solution than diversity, the conversation of just diversity is. That sounds really good. And it, it makes me want to ask you this question. How important is the concept of trust and distrust in allowing and promoting and furthering those conversations? Trust is important. It's, it's incredibly important. I'm working with a, an organization right now and you know, we're doing a survey and, and we're hoping to get as many responses as possible so that we can understand what's happening within the organization. And one of the, and we're not getting as many responses as I would love, but I understand that one of the reasons is a trust factor, right? There needs to be a trust. People need to trust that the people who are putting things into place, who have the ability to start putting things into place really do want to hear your voice they really do want to make a change and they understand especially if they're putting out a survey they understand that your voice is important jack do you want that television in the workout room or would it be better if we left it where everyone can just make their own sound you have to trust that they actually want to hear from you right? They actually want your input. And so trust is incredibly important. And how do you build trust? Well, you build trust by, by putting real money, <laughs> real tangible things into play so that people can begin to see that, oh, okay, something's happening. And then there is communication. Communication is key to trust. You then begin to tell people, you can over-communicate rather than under-communicate. Send them all the information. We're realizing that our communication lines are not as open as they can be, and we're not, there's a disconnect. So we want to close that. We're going to now communicate. These are some of the things that we're thinking about. Here's a way that you can give us your opinion. Here's a way that you can tell us what you need and start implementing some of the th ideas that come through that, that seem plausible. 
bigger things maybe can't be done right away or even fast, but implement so that people can see that somebody's listening. They're not just talking into the void and then everything stays the same way. So trust is huge, but trust comes with communication. And so what is it that, if, if we can think of this as, in very simplistic terms, as a case of marginalized people versus privileged people needing to have a conversation about how, how to make things more equitable, what are the marginalized people distrustful of and what are the privileged people distrustful of and the difficulty of starting a conversation? That's really an interesting question. And all of a sudden you are interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, we, if we take your question and we, and we think about it, I would think that the marginalized people are distrustful of the privileged people in truly believing that they even care because they're living in the privilege, right? They're living in the system that is working for them. And so over here, you're going to say, well, I really hope that that's what, that they really want to help, but uh, I'm not sure. Right. And the privileged people over here are going to be distrustful because, because they have that privilege and the fear that these people want to take something from them. And so they're okay. So ah, why do we need to change anything? Everything's fine, you know? But the thing is that in order to have those conversations or to bring, bridge the gap, you have to begin to see things that, that are invisible to each side. I say this as a black person, Prior to getting into this work, I would always say, oh my God, how can they not see how horrible this is for this, this, and this community? How is it that they, oh my God, they're so evil. It's so terrible. What they're like, really, what is, why can't they just open that? What can they see this? And then they're still doing it. And then I started having conversations more on this side with, with people more privileged and people and, and things would come up and they'd be like, oh my God, I never thought of it that way. So there's a blind spot. There's a, there's a barrier. There's a blind spot that uh, marginalized people can see certain things because it is their reality. And people that we call privileged are over here and they don't see it. it they've been shielded from it. And so they don't even understand how it affects not only them, but how it affects the people who are on the other side of this shield. And so when people over here begin to allow themselves to simply move in this direction and people over here, the marginalized people go, oh, you want to you wanna understand this? Here, here's some information. And they go, oh my God, I didn't realize. And then they dig more into it. Now you can kind of have a conversation and you can say, okay. And, and one thing that I like to do is to kind of switch it around. What if this were your reality? Let's give you a scenario. What if this were your reality? How would that feel to you? And you go, oh, like, well, that is a lot of people's reality. And this is why. Oh, right. So now we're able to start building that trust and we're able to start building 
those conversations that actually shift and move and build the bridge over that chasm that has been created. So it, that's my perception of it. And that's how I see it. And I work with it in that way, always trying to help people to see something versus the sometimes and it's not that I don't still do that but I do it a lot less I do it a lot less so Jack is there any final piece of information oh you'd like to share with us um, <laughs> today yeah there's a, I, I have a whole bunch of things on this list of things to talk about maybe this is a very big problem right now and it's fixable. I mean, it could be, it could be changed like that mm. if the right people wanted to. Mm. But right now, at this very minute, there exists in the White House a gender policy council. Mm. Now, you and I have talked about gender issues, mm -hmm. women's gender issues and men's gender issues. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the fact that for 60 years, we've been working on women's gender issues, mm -hmm. not done yet, but we got a 60 year track record of working on that. Just barely, barely, barely getting started on men's, men's. gender issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, women and girls, men and boys. Mm -hmm. The White House Gender Policy Council under President Biden, mm -hmm. a white man, the top mm -hmm. of the patriarchy in the United States. All right. <laughs> not terribly, terribly interested in the gender issues of men and boys. Mm. The White House Gender Policy Council unabashedly, avowedly, openly, clearly, sort of assertively insists and is entirely disinterested in the gender issues of men and boys. Now, they don't mm. say they're disinterested in the gender issues of men and boys. Mm -hmm. What they say is they focus exclusively on the gender issues of women and girls. Mm. Not good. Not good. No. So if, if President Biden were to say, you know, we've realized that was a mistake. Right. And, uh, there's a lot of men who voted for Donald Trump. And maybe we could win a few of them over by acknowledging that, you know, they've got some problems too as men. Right. Um, we're going to make this Gender Policy Council truly diverse, truly equitable, and truly inclusive. Mm. Babadoo, babading. Yeah, we'd have, okay. we'd have men, women, trans, fluid. We'd have a lot of, we would have a lot of, more representation and yes. therefore actually be able to address varying gender yes. issues because there yes. are different gender issues besides men and women in this yes. country, right? Yes. Well, I, sh I should probably say that I, I think there are some concerns in the Gender Policy Council about trans issues, but you know, my focus is primarily on men. I, I don't know that they're concerned about trans men as much as they're concerned about trans women. I, mm. I don't know about that. <clears throat> so maybe I should amend what I'm saying since you bring up the, mm -hmm. the question of, uh, you know, the multiple 
different facets of sexuality and gender. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should amend it to say there is no interest in the Gender Policy Council about the, the gender issues of maybe I should limit it to heterosexual men and boys. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. think they're really interested yeah. in the, the gender issues of, of cis. No, not that wouldn't work. But uh, but gay men, you know, just straight, mm. straight, straight gay men. Men who are just gay. <laughs> Right, you know, right, right. Yeah. I don't think they have any interest in the problems of gay men either. Yeah. So it would be, yeah, it would be nice to see President Biden acknowledge the mistake there. And I think he could do himself a world of good. Some mm. women would be upset by, by, by his making that change. But where are they going to go? Are they going to go, are they going to go for Trump in 2024? Not likely. <laughs> Not likely. Right? I don't know. A whole lot of women voted for him the first time and yeah. even more voted for him the second time. So I just, you know, I'm like, oh, what happened? You know, where, where's the breakdown? What, what is the deal here? You know, so yeah. we'll just, yeah, we, we can, uh, we can certainly hope that more men's issues will be addressed and therefore more men will feel that they are being heard and that there will be a shift there. Yeah, blending. A blending would be nice. You know, yeah. a blending of feminist ideas and masculist ideas. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, you know, I like that. We do, we do have a point of view. We do have, we do have something to contribute to the, to the solution, to, yeah. to, how, to solve the, how to solve the equation. Yeah. Well, Jack, it has been such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for bringing your insight and just everything. Well, thank you for being diverse, <laughs> equitable, and inclusive enough to say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have this men's issues guy. Yeah, That's no, good. we've got, you know, I think I, I really do believe that inclusivity, equitably, equi equity includes everyone, everyone. And we have to, and the only way that we can get through it all is by working together. And those who are ready and willing to do that, I'm more than willing to speak to. So before I let you go, I have to ask you my signature question, which is, what is your favorite dish? Can I give you a little backstory and then I'll tell you? Absolutely. Okay. My maternal grandmother was half Italian. She pretty much thought of herself as 100% Italian because her, <laughs> her parents, no, her, let's see, her father was from Italy. I think her mother was from London. So she was half Italian. Mm -hmm. She acted like she was 100% Italian. <laughs> My mother was a quarter Italian. Mm -hmm. I was an eighth Italian. <laughs> I am an eighth. I, I am an you eighth are Italian. an eighth Italian. I, yes. <laughs> did, I, did I miss, did I miss my, my something? Um, <laughs> so I am an eighth Italian. My grandmother lived with us mm. every Sunday. All of the cousins would come over to our house yeah. for spaghetti and meatballs. Oh, I love it. My favorite dish. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh, that's awesome. What a nostalgic thing for you also yeah. right yeah. every time yeah. you have it you probably have this whole yeah. feeling yeah. that comes with yeah. it yeah love it and i always think eh, it's pretty good but it's not like nana's not like nana's <laughs> <laughs>
That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. And I know people are going to gain some value from what you had to share. I sure hope so. And I, I've, I've benefited from, from talking with you, Sadie. Thank you very much. Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please leave a review. It would mean the world, but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it. In which case, it would be awesome if you help support my work over at patreon.com backslash Cedrola Maruska. And finally, before you go, don't forget diversitydish.com. I'd love to work with you. See you soon.